Ira Israel is the author of How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult, A Path to Authenticity and Awakening. The only people who are happy are the people who have wonderful relationships and who know their vocations. Voco in Latin means calling what their purpose is. And the people who do jobs because they're paid an excessive amount of money but they don't love the jobs, they go home and they anesthetize themselves with, with uh, you know, alcohol and, and, and television. And then they have to get up in the morning and do it all again. And their dream is to put a couple of bucks in the bank and then they'll retire and they won't have to sell their souls anymore. What I'm telling people to do is like find out who your authentic self really is and, and, and construct a life around that. I talk with Ira Israel about forces that keep us from authenticity and what it takes to discover our authentic self. It's time for Progressive Spirit. Be right back. You're listening to the podcast version of Progressive Spirit. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podomatic, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use to listen and give Progressive Spirit five stars, won't you? Contact me through ProgressiveSpirit.net with your thoughts and ideas about the show, and be sure to share this podcast on your social media. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. The website, again, is ProgressiveSpirit.net. For the Pacifica Radio Network, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schock. Ira Israel is a licensed professional clinical counselor and a licensed marriage and family therapist. He's a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, has three graduate degrees and 28 years of experience working in various capacities with award-winning filmmakers, musicians, artists, and writers. He's the author of How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult, A Path to Authenticity and Awakening. Welcome, Ira Israel, to Progressive Spirit. It's a pleasure to be here, John. Thanks for having me. So tell me about uh, this book, How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult. How'd this get started? Well, I noticed uh, epidemics of depression and anxiety in our culture. And I just, um, as I write in the book, I'm not the person who thinks that there's some rogue genes just, just afflicting Americans. So what I wanted to do was raise consciousness around all the things that we consider to be normal in our culture, such as capitalism, romantic love, um, psychology, uh, everything, our school system, and uh, see if those systems didn't have some underlying ramifications that were affecting people and causing them to be depressed or, or be anxious, because really, um, they are ec- epidemics in our culture. Uh, in the foreword uh, to your book, um, like, give me the author's name. Catherine Woodward Thomas. Catherine Woodward Thomas, who wrote Calling in the One and A Conscious Uncoupling. She wrote the foreword, and she said there's a, kind of a horizontal way and a vertical way. Sometimes therapy enables us to try to live in the world as it is, but there's also a part that's more important that I think you're getting to, is that we need to also challenge the way the world is and, yes. and recognize that we're unhealthy because of an unhealthy world. So personally, I espouse Advaita Vedanta. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that or... No, I haven't heard that phrase. What is that? So Advaita, So there's six darshanas in Hinduism. Um, there's uh, Three of them are, are some form of Vedanta, the, uh, Advaita Vedanta, Vashista Advaita Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta. And um, then the rest are have to do with yoga and things like that. So there's five basic terms uh, in um, Vedanta, the end of the Vedas, that come out of the Upanishads. And this is what my spiritual understanding of the universe is based on. So the first term is Brahman. And the best translation I've ever heard of that is that without attributes, meaning that if you can think it, it's not it. And it's the same thing in our culture with G-D in the Judeo-Christian Bible, you know, God or uh, mystery. It's beyond human um, comprehension. Uh So Brahman is the first term. And the second term is Atman, which best translate, it's a soul. And then the third term is Samsara, which is the wheel of reincarnation. And then the fourth term is Maya, um, which is, uh, I, I like to translate as illusory. So just think like everything has an ephemeral quality. Everything is passing. Everything is, you know, illusory. And then the last term is karma, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which is um, uh, the law of action and reaction. So the tools of meditation and 
yoga, which I go into in the book, were devised and designed to help us transcend Maya, all that we perceive through our five senses, and realize that Atman equals Brahman, that we're all divine, we're all God, we're all children of God, we're all whatever you believe in your higher self, your higher power, that's all interconnected in the world. So for me, it's just a philosophy, uh, an understanding of the world. And if you study um, quantum physics, and uh, you'll notice that there are distinct similarities between everything from uh, the Hindu and Buddhist tradition and what we're discovering now. Thou art that. And, exactly. uh, and what that does is it enables us to kind of step back and recognize that we are not our thoughts, not our feelings, that there's a deeper uh, aspect, a deeper, our higher, I don't know how you, however we put yeah. the metaphor, but uh, um, and that and that gives us a, a real freedom, doesn't it? Well, it's a, it's a fascinating thing. Nietzsche wrote, um, "What if only the worst and most superficial thoughts rose to consciousness?" You know, my cat, who we were talking about before the show, she goes through life perfectly fine without the self reflexivity that we have. So, in my book, what I'm looking at is, you know, there's a beautiful quote by Jacques Lacan. He says, "Language thinks me." Right. So our mind fools us into thinking that it can think all these things. But actually, with all the depending on what statistics you listen to, we have a very limited number of thoughts every day. And most of them are the same as yesterday. And most of them are negative. The mind has a negativity bias. So my book was designed to try to get people to look at their 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 operating system and, you know, make some tweaks or hacks to, you know, get rid of some of those negative voices in their heads because no human being was ever born with a voice that says, I suck at this, I'll never amount to anything, all my relationships fail, blah, 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 blah. We're not born with language. You know, we're born with, with some kind of subconscious um, way of chunking up the world in terms of space and time, but we're not born with language. So for me as a psychotherapist, when I'm sitting in my office and I'm listening to these fairly successful people with this like wide array of self-doubts and low self-esteem, I keep on saying, hey, whose voice is that? You know, how, like you're the president of X. Like, how could you, you know, like, what, what, what do you mean? Like, you know, so that's what's that, my curiosity led me into trying to understand how human consciousness got to the way it is now. So let's let's talk about that. I want to talk about depression too, but let's talk about first of all this um, development of negative self uh, language, and right. that and that and that actually, as I understand what you're saying, started out as, as a positive thing, a survival technique. Exactly. So um, you know, parenting is the most difficult job in the world. There's no such thing as a perfect parent, and most cultures that we consider to be uncivilized third world countries. They nurse their babies, uh, and the, ba the babies are on the mother's breast in a satchel, sleeping with the parents until four or five years old. So we do this thing in America called the individuation process because what our school system is designed to do is to make workers. And so, you know, science and medicine where, you know, you get the baby off of the breast in 18 months if it's ever on it. And, um, you know, with the exception of people who do attachment parenting, they're, you know, your, your kids are away from you and your kids are at school. And what I'm looking at is, is there something really traumatic about uh, a baby sleeping in its own room when it's two weeks old? Isn't that kind of terrifying for a baby who, that knows it's going to die um, if it's not clean, if it's not safe, if it's not fed? You know, why do babies cry so much like when you're alone in the dark in a, in a separate room or when you drop them off for school the first time and you drive away and your kid is like, you know, goes into some sort of panic attack? You know, what? Like, so again, I'm looking at human beings as animals and then what we consider to be, um, you know, productive in terms of our American version of capitalism. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. There was a statistic that you put out there that I shouldn't be surprised about, but it was good to see it. it, it you wrote that, and it's getting back to this idea of the compliant worker. 56% of contributors to the DSM-5 mm -hmm. are connected with the pharmaceutical industry. In other right. words, uh, we are creating, in a sense, diagnoses such as perhaps, and I don't know if it, I don't want to overstate what you're stating, but uh, depression, for example, uh, to make uh, and the cure for that is to make us workers. That that we're, right. it's being diagnosed in a faulty way. Can you talk more about that? 
Sure. Um, as sentient beings, what I believe is we have one primary desire, and that is to be loved unconditionally. And we grew up in this crazy society, which only gave us tools to gain love conditionally because we speak well, because we're rich, because we're sexy, because we drive a certain car, because we take vacations in exotic places. And we're constantly seducing people into liking our false selves, our facades, our personas, our outer selves. But what we really crave is them to just love us for just being on planet Earth for these 80 years and just being, you know, a human being. So America is a giant resentment factory. And to me, that's one of the root causes of, of resentment because we're constantly um, doubting the love of other people because we're we're they're falling in love with parts of us that we really don't want them to fall in love with. I mean, nobody. It's funny. I uh, on internet dating, you know, people show their six pack abs or they um, they I don't know what they do, but they, but like I I always imagine if you had a series of weddings that related to like what the first images of these people are. Like, will you take this man who drives a blank and vacations and whatever. And, you know, the women talk about how independent they are and these other things, crazy busy. It's fascinating that the, 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 the self that we choose to present to the world. And then we wonder why there is this epidemic of depression because we want, and then again, the whole book is about authenticity. So when all, I'm, I'm just um, provoking people into showing up in a more authentic, loving, vulnerable, compassionate manner so they can get the love that they really want. So we show the face that we want to present to the world, and then people might say they like that, give us positive affirmation for that, and then we're bummed out that they don't like us because they like the face. Right. No, no, no. I mean, it's funny, like, like, you you, you know, like uh, after a marriage, you'll see, uh, you know, uh, sex goes down. Somebody puts on a couple of extra pounds. Eventually, you know, the like the one of them will turn to the other one and say, like, you wouldn't even be here if I weren't a millionaire. Like, you wouldn't even be here if I didn't uh, take care of all your sexual needs, you know. And, And so, again, we we're, we're we're very confused as a species, and our culture is uh, you know not as advanced as uh, many people would uh, think it is. Well, we're pretty good with the technology part, but yeah. uh, putting that uh, to life, and I want to talk about that in a little bit. Ira Israel is my guest. He is the author of How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult. Uh, the subtitle is A Path to Authenticity and Awakening. And uh, you begin your book um, with the. Uh, uh, definitions of authenticity that, uh, well, are, are somewhat troubling. You know, I'm, I, it's just an, people, I want to be my authentic with you, and it's basically an excuse to insult someone or dismiss <laughs> them, right? Yeah. Talk, talk about, uh, well, talk about the structure of your book and sure. as well as um, authenticity and wrong ways to understand it as well as right ways. So I examine authenticity psychologically, colloquially, um, sociologically, philosophically, the way we understand it in our culture. And I want people to question, again, um, does language create reality? And if so, then in you choosing your language, are you choosing or creating your reality? And is that reality um, conducive to attracting the, the love you know, that you want? So the only thing that correlates strongly with happiness is the quality of our intimate relationships. And the thing that I believe is that the number one thing that correlates strongly with secure intimate relationships is authenticity, how authentic we can be. And that's why attachment theory is a key component of authenticity because we have these, you know, the human mind is, is a fascinating thing. It, it basically assimilates traumas from, you know, the first day you're born, your whole life and in things in the past. And it projects them into the future because what it's trying to do is stave off potential future trauma. So your mind is worrying about things or it's planning if this happens, making contingency plans and doing all these hypothetical things kind of in, in the background. And um, I, what I'm finding or, you know, uh, the, the theory of the book is that your mind creates fears, prejudices, resentments and expectations that are hindering you now from showing up authentically in the loving relationships that you want. So during your whole childhood, you're, again, and I believe that the way we individuate children in this culture is is very traumatizing. I, I, I know very few people who came out of, you know, baseball, football, our public school system, 
unscathed. You know, there's some kind of horrible humiliation or this happened to me or even like my parents got divorced, something that wasn't the child's fault, but they assimilated as if I had been perfect, my parents wouldn't have gotten divorced. If I had been perfect, then this would have happened, this would have happened or that wouldn't have happened. So, you know, I'm really interested in, in, in finding out how we perceive authenticity. And then for the second half part of the book, what I do is I reconstruct it in terms of attachment, atonement, attunement, presence, and congruence. So attachment is just attachment theory. And there's a beautiful quote by Harville Hendricks that helps explicate why I'm so interested in this. He says that the subconscious purpose of marriage in America is to enable us to complete our childhoods. Our parents had deficits. Those deficits wounded us. Those wounds became defense mechanisms and those defense mechanisms became our personalities. And we'll always be attracted to people who can replicate the dynamics from one or more of our primary caregivers. So what I'm saying is that there's a wounded child in all of us who's retroactively or trying to retroactively gain the approval, acceptance, and love from their primary caregivers, you know? Uh, I mean, more specifically, I say in the book, we become what we love and we become what we hate and both are inauthentic, you know, because we want our parents to love us. So we learn how to use a fork and we smile and we get good grades, but then we want to individuate. So we get a mullet, get a tattoo, use the F word, you know, do things to, to say to them, I'm not you, I'm autonomous, you can't control me, even if you're paying my rent, even if you're feeding me, blah, blah, blah. So, I, so you know, we're very conflicted in a way, and I want to raise that to consciousness. The second part of authenticity is atonement or at-one-ment, and that's releasing our resentments about things we can't change. So if you walked into your home today and saw your child trying to jam a square peg into a round hole, you would stop them. And that, and yet this is what your mind does all day long. It's trying to change the past. It's trying to change things that it can't change. It wants you to have a, a, a better, you know, something. Um, so uh, there's a beautiful quote by Lily Tomlin who says, forgiveness means giving up all hope of having a better past. So that's why the logical conclusion of my book is to forgive everybody because you're only causing your own suffering by being unwilling to forgive. The third part of authenticity is attunement, which is being able to connect in person with other people. I write that mirror neurons do not fire via text message. One hug equals one million Facebook likes. And as you were just saying, John, we delude ourselves into thinking that we're connecting through Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, all these things. But what we really need, we need hugs. We need to throw a frisbee on the beach. We need to chat with other people. We need to stand next to a loved one in a museum and look at beauty and talk about how it moves us. And, and you know, we need really to learn how to reconnect. We're, we're tribal in nature. And yet, you know, more people live alone in Manhattan than live with other people. They're, they're, you know, we're just growing more and more alienated as a, uh, what's his name? Uh, the, the guy who wrote Bowling Alone, John Putnam, he says, you know, the prizes of our society the big house with the fence and the guard and the children all have separate rooms that causes it foments alienation. And to me, to answer your original question 15 minutes ago, that's what's showing up as depression, because I've never had anyone come into my office and say, I feel loved, supported, respected by all of my friends, family and coworkers, and I'm depressed. So the things that we think are connecting us in our culture are really alienating us. And then the fourth part of authenticity is presence, not letting our mind drag us into the past or drag us into the future. The tools I espouse are yoga and meditation. And then the, fact, the last part of the book is on congruence. And that's having our outer world match our inner world. So we're living in this incredibly privileged time when we get to decide who we want to be and how we want to show up and what type of lives we want to lead. And then, you know, what I want people to do is find the tools to have those lives and live in integrity and, you know, really keep themselves at the, the high end of the happiness spectrum. So the thing that you probably noticed first in the book was the epitaph, which was Andre Gide, who said, it is better to be hated for who you are than to be loved for who you are not. Ira Israel speaking there, How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult, A Path to Authenticity and Awakening is the name of the book. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm John Shuck. So let's talk a little bit more that we got the outline, we got the skeleton about, about some specifics here. So uh, you mentioned when someone comes to you uh, depressed and, and what, uh, what the industry wants is to give us pills. And, right. and in some cases, uh, well, I'll just ask you this, are, are in some cases for depression, uh, that is a correct... Um... Absolutely. 
Uh, on the other hand, you have to look at the barometer or metric of mental health in our culture. And normally, uh, if you really analyze the DSM, which is the, our Bible for diagnosing people, the barometer of mental health in our culture is, can you show up for work? And yeah. I, I really think we have to question that because, you know, these pills that are blocking your brain from from doing certain things, you know, um, so that you can show up at work. Uh, not really. You know, a lot of people are catatonic in bed. They need something for a, a week or two to, to get out of bed. That's fantastic. You know, if you, if you can if you can mask the symptoms or, or cover them up so that the, the body can rejuvenate and you can come out of that ahead, that's fine. But what I'm finding is that people are on um, uh, cocktails of Paxil, Prozac, Xanax for 10, 15, 20 years. And then all of a sudden, you know, when they even think of getting off of them, they're, they're, they're terrified because they don't want to go back to those to that time when they were severely depressed. So, um, you know, there's always um, things to consider. And no, I'm not 100% against drugs. You know, if you need to show up for your concert, if you need to do something and you're depressed and you cannot spend three days with your psychotherapist trying to figure out why you're depressed, if it's just like this overwhelming blanket of, of, of uh, depression, then of course, take, take the medication, but just know what it's for and then try to do it for a limited time. Because the medication ultimately, as you say, kind of numbs us, right? It takes the, it takes those edges off, which is a, a it feels like a better thing than really feeling bad. But it uh, also, as you mentioned, makes us a little bit more of, of robots, a little bit more uh, what? Accepting of whatever people dish out. <laughs> I'm thinking, and I, I just want to uh, see what you think about this. Uh, since 9-11, for example, we have been paraded, herded through uh, the airport security system. Our faces are down. We're just like af afraid of everything. Um, and I, I often try challenge people, don't you think that's rather odd? Oh, no, we have to do that. You know, and I'm thinking, is, is that part of just accepting this fear, big world of fear as it is? Well, it, for me, I always use the um, story about living in Manhattan in the 80s. So I lived uh, in Manhattan and we had you had like five locks on your door and there was mm. a baseball bat in the corner. And then if you were of the inclination, you would have a gun in your, you know, next to your bed and you'd just be terrified of break ins. And so when I'm teaching at Esalen and other people and, and other places, I'll ask the students, I'll say, raise your hand if your front door is unlocked right now. Raise your hand if your car door is unlocked right now. We live in such a degree of fear. I mean, we're in fight or flight mode most of our waking hours. And so again, meditation, yoga, anything you can do to take yourself out of fight or flight mode for some amount of time and just get one clean, loving breath and realize that it's, you know, th that what we consider to be normal is crazy. <laughs> well, let's go again. I'm going to get with depression one more time because I, I, I um, am depressed every now and then. And, but I, actually find it sometimes to be a gift you know uh, yeah. because it's there's there's a reality to that i mean it's a time of we used to we call it depression but there's also a, a spiritual aspect of that right it's it's a time to rest your body to uh recognize that all of the junk you're receiving is 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 um well not healthy it's it's a time to kind of process all that well, our paradigm that we live in currently for the last 45 years is uh, the one psychologically of a cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. So in that paradigm, our belief system is that emotions don't arise ex nihilo. Emotions are always b b arising because of thoughts. Thoughts precede emotions. That's our paradigm. I'm just saying what it is. So you're, you don't just spontaneously have this overwhelming depression. What happens is you're thinking, oh, no one's called in a week. Like nobody cares about me. I could die today and my, uh, I wouldn't find my body for a month. And your mind just goes into the spiral. And you, you, that to me is, is really one of the main causes of depression. The second one that's really fascinating is grief. 
and particularly, and I write about yes. this extensively in the book, we're not, again, we're not allowed to grieve in this culture. You know, like your, you, your child, uh, if uh, something terrible happens and you call your boss and you say, I'm so sorry, you know, my child was walking in the street and was hit by a car. Like your boss is like, oh, that's terrible. Take two weeks off. I mean, you can never get over losing a child, period. You, it's just like the worst thing possible. And yet in our culture, we, we you know, we just, everything revolves around work. And so uh, the DSM, the latest DSM-5, which came out, I think, three or four years ago, maybe a little longer, what they did, there was something called the bereavement exemption, where if uh, somebody's child was murdered, um, you would get two weeks off uh, before, well, it was actually, they would give you a month before they would diagnose you with depression. And if you had all those symptoms continuously, you know, months later, then you would be uh, diagnosed with depression. But uh, they eliminated the bereavement exemption in the fifth DSM. And the quote was that they found, this, the, the psychiatrist found that the same pharmaceuticals that treat depression also work on grief. And to me, that's disgusting. That's horrifying. You know, like we, you need to, if something, you know, like that's, it's just when someone's, you're never going to see this person again, they died or they were killed or they OD'd or something like you don't, we don't have good rituals in our, in our culture to grieve people, you know, to, to grieve the, those losses. And, and we're losing things all the time. But again, you know, you can always find some, you can always go into your psychiatrist's office and get some kind of pharmaceutical to prop you up at your desk. Wow. That, that's amazing that that was said and that that's what you just said. So grief has suddenly become something you can fix with a pill. Yeah, it's horrifying. I'm John Schock. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm speaking with Ira Israel, author of How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult, A Path to Authenticity and Awakening. More to come. Stay with us. Progressive Spirit is produced every week. It couldn't happen without the financial support of my congregation, Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Southminster's website is www.southmin.org. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon for the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, as well as podcast. Show KBOO some love, won't you? KBOO.FM and click Donate. I'm speaking with Ira Israel. He's the author of How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult, A Path to Authenticity and Awakening. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm John Schuck. Let's say we suffer um, a trauma like that and a great loss and 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 kind of and because it's so available we got what you just said 20 million americans on antidepressants and you go to the you go to your doctor you go to your counselor whatever and they say here this will take the edge off okay so eventually you want to go deeper and say you really want to deal with the grief and let the grief be yeah how how as a counselor do you help people through that I feel that everybody has to find their own ritual to to walk through the fire and to um, understand that reality is not going to show up the way that their mind expected it to. And again, the key component in at one mint is is forgiveness. So there's a beautiful quote um, by Eckhart Tolle. He says, you either change your life, you either accept your life or change it. Any other position is insane. You either change your life or you either accept your life or change it. Any other position is insane. So again, my whole thing is about human consciousness, wanting things to be other than the way they are. You know, if you can't change something and you're complaining about it and fighting about it, it you know, like uh, um, I, I would be much happier if I were six, five and weighed 185 pounds and could slam dunk, you know, but I'm not six, five, I'm five eleven, and I weigh more than that and I can't slam dunk. But so your mind is continuously <laughs> is making these hypotheticals and it, and it just, that's the cause of your own suffering. These woulda, coulda, shoulda, didn't. So that's, that's, those are the things that, that interest me in terms of depression and in, in terms of, you know, processing 
the grief uh, of our the things that we lost, our our hopes, our dreams, our ideals, our relationships, our loved ones. You know, children go off the empty empty nest syndrome. You know, just all these things revolve around personal identity, who we are who we want to be, who we think we should be, and then, you know, getting tools to, to keep us at the higher ends of our happiness ranges. And it's not wrong to be sad about those things when they happen. It's just no. to be honest with how we feel, isn't it? Of course. You, I, I mean, you know, everybody, and again, we have a, our bandwidth for emotions in our culture is incredibly thin. I write in the book, if you saw a man every day on the corner uh, crying for, for a week, you know, you would you would. You would call the police and they would call the short bus and they would put this person away, you know, but you would ask them, well, what happened? Why are you standing on the corner crying? We, it's unseemly to us. It makes us feel uncomfortable. By the same token, if you saw an angry woman standing on the corner of Main Street screaming for a, a, a week, they would, you would, you, I don't even think it would last an hour. You would just call the police. The police would come over. They'd ask her a couple of questions. They'd call the short bus. They'd give her a four-day vacation. They'd 5150 her and she would be locked up in an insane asylum until they found out like why she was screaming and if it was because you know god forbid somebody killed her daughter or something like that it wouldn't matter we just want we don't we don't accept emotions in our reality yeah and especially uh, emotions that are are uh, gender uh what for me gender t- tell me, give yeah. me the word well, and get, a, describe that a little bit it's becoming a lot better now men you know and and it's and to me i there's a quote in the book i say something funny like um you know 40 years ago if you told my grandmother that someday there would be transgender bathrooms, gay people could marry, marijuana would be legal, and a black man would be president, she would have laughed you out of the room. But we are evolving in in certain ways to allow men to have a wider range of emotions and not be so staid and, you know, we're the warriors and the the workers and things like that. And women are also, um, you know, specifically with the Me Too movement, which is unbelievable and wonderful, you know, they're, they're getting Getting angry, uh, you know, uh, because they've been violated, they've been oppressed, they've been taken advantage of, they've been exploited, and there's been a lot. They're, they're putting their foot down and just saying, "It stops with me." Like I, I'm not going to let this 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 uh, insanity continue on to my daughters. There's an article that you wrote uh, in the uh, uh, the website, the Good Men Project. It's called "How the Internet uh, en- Engendered the Fall of Consumer-Based Capitalism and the Rebirth of Democracy: A Brief History of the Future." Uh, tell me a little bit uh, about that and and the technology um, uh, of the internet and what what it's doing to us, I guess, positively and negatively. Okay, so the article starts. I was. I, I was literally like moved to tears last year. I read this article um, about these this this Navy captain. You know, Italy is a is in a terrible financial state, and there were these migrants, these people trying to escape, the, and they were all black uh, from Nigeria, some South African country, and they were on some terrible boat, and the boat went down uh, in the sea. And the Italians who are, you know, who's they're living in a very uh, tenuous financial situation, they decided that it was worth nine million dollars to recuperate the the wreck and and to give these 300 uh, people proper burials. And the reason they did this is because the, the, the captain said, I ordered the Navy to recover the wreck to bury those brothers and sisters of ours who would otherwise would have remained at the sea bottom forever. I did it because we Italians know the value of the word civilization. That to me is super intense that you that somebody, you know, and, and again, your show is about social justice. So in our culture, giving someone a proper burial, having a name someplace that, you know, their, their next of kin are notified. That's a part of civilization. That's something that animals, you know, they can't do, they don't do. So I start the article with that. And I want to uh, just examine the good things about having a civilization and order and peace and the luxury that we, we enjoy. And also, um, you know, this What's our next civilization? You know, if you walked up to, as I say in the book, if you walked up to a feudal lord 500 years ago and said, you know, someday you won't have serfs. Someday there'll be factories and people will take horses to or cars or buses to the factories and they'll be paid in dollars, not in carrots and celery. 
So, um, you know, we don't know what our next society is going to resemble. I'm particularly, um, I'm of the opinion that His Holiness the Dalai Lama and the influence on compassion, uh, I'm hoping that that uh, is the next society, that we don't have to be so competitive. We don't, you know, um, as I write in the book, capitalism is based on Herbert Spencer's dictum, survival of the fittest. That was fantastic when we lived in, you know, with finite resources, but we're living in this world of abundance right now where we have the ability to feed all 8 million people, all 8 billion people on the planet and 3.5 of them, almost half will go to bed hungry tonight. There's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with people having a hundred billion dollars. You know, you can't eat any better. You can't dress any better. There's that you, you only have, you, you can't wear that many jeans. You know, you just don't need that. So we used to have in the 1950s, according to Robert Reich, you know, we used to have taxes and that we were basically like this kind of middle class. There was just a large middle class and that's what drove our economy. And then what happened after Ronald Reagan was like there were deregulation started. And again, this is the premise of my my book is that power corrupts. And there used to be laws in place and regulations so that people couldn't get too powerful, like Donald Trump or even uh, I'll, I'll say this and people will hate me, but Bill Gates. You know, like, like if, those, if his money had been taxed and he did not have a monopoly, then, you know, but, but right now he's man of the year for all the money he, he, he donates, which is great. But still, if you, ha- if you look at the system in general, there are things that can be improved upon and we need to, uh, you know, abolish the electoral college. You know, there's no reason today, you know, a person from Wisconsin, their vote should count 3.8 times more than my vote. We don't need that anymore. The Chad system of voting is totally uh, antiquated. We can go to block, we can use the blockchain technology for Bitcoin and we can all vote for our devices. And then hopefully what will happen is we won't need the, the Republican and Democratic parties anymore because that's just, it's, it's it, you know, this crony capitalism and people doing everything to run their campaigns, which is essentially like accepting bribes. It's, it's, it's all wrong. Our whole political system has been corrupted. So I wrote this article today because I think that the, one of the benefits of the um, uh, internet, is we've seen the Arab Spring and we've seen the ability of marginalized people to communicate and find each other and then uh, build a base and things like that. And again, for me, the Me Too movement is just so wonderful and great. And we need to, to capitalize on, on whether it's like, um, I forget the gentleman's name, Colin Kaepernick. You know, we, we either have to stand up together or kneel down together. But there's a, there's a hegemony in place right now. And, it, and, it, and it's, it's coming down. The, the, the old ways of slavery and exploitation, they're, 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 they're coming down. And so, you know, Elliot asked, does it end with a bang or a whimper? Are we going to have to go through a civil war? Are we going to have to go through a world war? Are there going to be massive assassinations? Is there going to be a bovine plague? Is there going to, what is going, what's going to have to happen to raise consciousness so that we move into the next society of compassion and authenticity rather than the craziness of, you know, people working for 40 years, having a heart attack, you know, being addicted to opioids, doing all this craziness so we can work wherein when nobody wants worked really hard on his tombstone. Everybody wants beloved. So why do we live in this crazy society where every day we're just like running ourselves into the ground to earn money? All right. Ira Israel, his book is How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult, A Path to Authenticity and Awakening. Um, I subject myself every year because I guess it's the, it's the religion of America to do so and watch the Super Bowl and all of its uh, commercials, and, and one of them was just really, it was just really amazing. Two of them, uh, a, a car ad, uh, and, it, and, and they, people write, if you buy this car ad, suddenly you help people with cancer because yeah, uh, whatever. And I'm thinking, well, why not just donate to cancer in the first place, you Great. car company? I'll tell you about it. We feel there's a beautiful, beautiful. Everybody should go to the YouTube and put in Slavo Zizek, S L A V O V Z I Z E K, and then put in Starbucks. So he goes through just like I do in my book, um, and, my, and I just love his. 
he's he most people will consider him to be insane in some ways but he's super smart and he's very well read and he's a he's a real a truly great philosopher and he says that starbucks enables you to do something terrible and it's opposite something good in the one you know because they put on right. the wall that it's free trade uh, fair trade and free this and no us no whatever so we we've done this thing in america because there is this subconscious um guilt that we feel and and that's what i, I again that's why I, it's a very touchy subject but the whole bill gates uh situation like i don't think our country should have 501c3c's they're being taken advantage of and gore vidal wrote about this in 1973 you know the all these churches and things that don't pay taxes uh all these organizations that don't pay taxes and then you know bring malaria nets from china to africa but you know they don't have to pay taxes on this money. I don't know. I there, there's some kind of um, search for um, redemption in all of these things. I mean, there's a lot of great people doing a lot of wonderful things. But the, but I I've written on the internet several times. All philanthropy, real philanthropy, is done anonymous. You don't want people to know about it. You don't want to be like you just you give and then you give more and then you give more and you shut up. You don't tell people about it because, again, social justice, the root of it is is trying to make a world a better place for everybody. And if you're out there doing ego gratifying things like saying, I'm making the world a better place for everyone, you're not making the world a better place for everyone. Just do the work, show up, be your higher self and be as compassionate and loving in all of your interactions as you can be. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Uh, you know, uh that well that's it's a substitution of the promise of charity not even charity itself the promise of charity uh, instead of justice right it's it's and, and we're also deluded in that it's somehow if we make the billionaires rich it'll all tr trickle down with with benevolent blessings to everyone else i mean it's a similar principle uh capitalism doesn't care about justice it cares about this fake charity line. you know yeah it's fascinating as i said you know we we have a choice in every interaction whether we, we listen to our, our higher self, which is going to choose love all the time, or our fear-based side, which is our ego, and that's going to say, no, I need more, I need this, I need that. Like, why does he have, why does Johnny have a Lamborghini and I only have a Maserati? You know, your, your, your ego is trying to gain just some sort of, you know, fleeting, you know, it's a, it's a hedonic treadmill. And all the things that you think will make you happy or your ego will make you will happy will, will not make you happy. All those things like the only people who are happy are, who are the people who have wonderful relationships and who know their vocations. Voco in Latin means calling what their purpose is. And the people who do jobs because they're paid an excessive amount of money, but they don't love the jobs. They go home and they anesthetize themselves with with uh, you know, alcohol and, and, and television. And then they have to get up in the morning and do it all again. And their dream is to put a couple of bucks in the bank and then they'll retire and they won't have to sell their souls anymore. But what I'm telling people to do is like find out who your authentic self really is and 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 construct a life around that rather than doing some crazy thing that you saw in movies when you were in high school. Like if I become rich, then I'll get a wonderful spouse and we'll have 2.3 kids and she'll drive a Subaru and I'll drive a Porsche and my kids will go to great colleges. What I'm saying is that, yeah, your kids will go to great colleges now and you'll end up $400,000 or they'll end up $400,000 in debt. And the whole system has gone, gone off the rails. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about it. I, I've, you know, talked with people, um, whistleblowers. Of, of various, um, uh, you know, places and, and whatnot. And, and I found that many of them, it really was a spiritual quest because when, when they finally, when they got the courage to kind of do what they had to do, vilified in many cases, as, as you said, it's better to be uh, hated for who you are than, than loved for who you are not, that there really was a sense of increased happiness, even though, uh, I mean, it doesn't mean that oftentimes they felt great opposition um and and faced that and it was very strong it was a big struggle but nonetheless there was a sense of of um well you might say like you say authenticity uh, tell me some uh positive stories of of people who uh you that you know who have um been able to come through i 
do this thing at Esalen in between my workshops called drive-through therapy, where I give everyone 10 minutes. And something just happened yesterday, which like made me just stop and cry. So um, there, there, someone just posted on their Facebook page that, um, and the person is a very high up person at, uh, the, the, I think it's the, now it's the second biggest company in America. I don't want to name names or anything. And um, so we do this drive-through therapy and I, I, you know, I, I'm authentic. I'm authentic to a fault. So um, she was telling me how her job had become somewhat uh, less satisfying and things like that. And so there's this thing announcing on the, 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 on Facebook the other day, she said, I want to thank Ira for his drive-through therapy. He told me two things. One, be the best mother I could be. And two, do some research development to find what will feed my soul. So I went down to half time and I am starting a course to become a doula because I'm always interested. I've always been interested in the birth process. I might not actually become a doula, but, you know, I've cut my hours to half time at this company and I'm going to, you know, follow my dreams. And and there was all these comments about it. And it's just like, you know, as I said, we're taught these things like what's the measure of success when we're in high school. And it turns out that all those things, you know, we live in this country where the inalienable, you have the inalienable right to pursue happiness. And that is a surefire way to misery. If you're pursuing happiness, particularly in the, the breed of another person's version of success. So you have to look into your heart. You have to find what works for you. And, you know, hopefully it'll be like being of service to others, become a doula, you know, teach meditation, take people on hikes in the Andes, you know, but sitting behind a desk, pushing numbers on a screen, it, you know, it, it's not the, the, it's not, it doesn't make people happy. Tell me a little bit about um, mindfulness and the mindfulness industry. Um, and, yeah. and, and, uh, positive and negative things, because there's on one level, obviously being mindful is a good thing and practicing of meditation, but there's also a sense in which even a good thing can be corrupted. Um, and again, and you know, people are going to say, what are you, some sort of socialist or communist? But in America, we've done to yoga and mindfulness, what Domino's did to pizza, what Starbucks did to coffee. We take out the, the, the kernels. Um, so the mindfulness, the, the mindfulness movement in America is horrifying to me because um, it's, they're selling calmness but they're removing it from its Buddhist or Hindu or even Christian or Jewish roots most of the time. And they, they, there's a couple of places in, in my town that have secularized. And they, the, the people told me, you cannot mention Buddha. You cannot mention any God or anything if you teach here, blah, blah, blah. And it's funny because, you know, without that paradigm, without that matrix of beliefs, Yes, of course, you can sit there and concentrate on your breath and, and gain calmness, but, but the people don't know why. So for me, mindfulness is um, it's a great form of uh, meditation, but you have to know the distinction between um, that Buddhist tradition and the Hindu. So for me, um, in Hinduism, as I expressed before, we meditate in order to transcend maya and and one of the aspects of the mind is that you can't tell it what not to speak and another aspect is that you can't shut it off so what you have to do is find a a, a focal point in some ways or an anchor and you concentrate on that whether it's your breath or a mantra or walking or something and then you'll find if you concentrate on that long enough like the 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 that hamster wheel in your head which is telling you all this other stuff will kind of dissipate and go away. And that's when the calm is. So um, it's interesting because the, 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 that's a, the, what I've just described is from the Vedantic Hindu lineage of having us transcend our thoughts so that we can realize our inner divinity, which happens to be calm. You know, like God is, is calm, right? So if you're realizing, if you're becoming at one with, for a couple of seconds with uh, the divine, then you're going to be blissed out and calm. So Buddha wasn't born a Hindu the way Jesus was born a Jew, but after um, uh, his search for the origins of pain, suffering, and um, death, he found that um, there was no self to transcend and there was no divine to transcend to. So he created mindfulness meditation, which is essentially trying to harness or train the mind 
and get it to do what you want it to do so it doesn't drag you around like wild horses. Which also, you know, if your mind is dragging you around like wild horses drag people around, then you're going to be neurotic. You're going to be depressed, you know. So, again, it's a tool so that you can gain a greater understanding and, and harness your, your mind. So um, I love the fact that people are talking about mindfulness and that mindfulness is going into corporations and things. But there's no disadvantage to learning about Buddhism. Buddhism is not a religion. As I say in the book, Buddhism is a prescription to alleviate suffering. Depression and anxiety are suffering. So what we call Buddhism and that the Buddha's prescription, the Four Noble Truths and the Eight Limb Path to alleviate suffering is perfect for our culture. Yeah. You mentioned mindfulness in corporations. Well, there, again, it, what's the purpose of this mindfulness practice? Is it to make us better workers or is it to well, really move us to a deep sense of whatever use the ancient language the divine that yeah. thou art that you know that's that's what I'm, I'm thinking like you say when it's stripped away uh from its roots uh, we tend to not do the work it's funny we, we had that phrase from it's a horrible phrase but going postal um is the is the phrase where about that per, that postal worker that went into his office with a machine gun and, and killed everybody so i think that mindfulness the, one of the incentives uh, to bring it into corporations is because i mean statistically it's effective it'll help you you know just be happier and, and if you're happier you'll you'll be happier about going to your job and doing the things that you have to do but on the other hand, you know, we're really living in this very trepidatious culture where, you know, people do crack all the time and go postal. So, you know, having them um, have the tool to be able to calm themselves down and, and, you know, learn how to take a walk or just do something besides work. Because, you know, the, as I write in the article, you know, we all get addicted to this this crazy American dream, which forces many people to go into debt. The average mortgage is $222,000. The average student loan is $26,000. The average credit card debt is $4,000. And you, you lose your freedom when you're in debt because when your mind is constantly thinking, oh, my monthly nut is $8,000. I got to pay for this and I got to pay for that and I got to pay for this and food costs this and I haven't taken a vacation in three years and your mind is operating, that then you're a slave. And so what I'm trying to do in the book and I try to do in this article is just have people make, people make healthier choices and realize that, you know, if you're buying into this whole system of pharmaceuticals, working 80 hours a week, getting depressed, not living your heart's dream, not living, not being nourished, you know, being alienated, thinking that like the, the only respite that you have is to get drunk in front of your television at 11 o'clock at night and then masturbate and go to sleep. Like that, our culture is just in a very dysfunctional place. And what I'm trying to do is bring it back to a more loving, compassionate place. Good stuff. Ira Israel has been my guest. His book, pick it up, How to Survive Your Childhood. Now that you're an adult uh, website, iraisrael.com. Thank you for your work. Thanks for uh, being with me today. Thank you very much, John. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Progressive Spirit is heard every week. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed every week through the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks also to the following stations for carrying Progressive Spirit each week. WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee, WEHC, Emory, Virginia, WPVM, Asheville, North Carolina, Kutztown, University Radio, Kutztown, Pennsylvania, KCEI, Taos, New Mexico, KACR, Alameda, California, WDRT, Viroqua, Wisconsin, KSOW, Cottage Grove, Oregon, KYAQ, Newport, Oregon, and KZ88, Kabul, Missouri. You can download Progressive Spirit for free on your favorite podcast app. The website is progressivespirit.net. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Schock. Be well.